0: This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences seeks to show us what we really have in common. I'm Condis Presley. From now until the end of the month, you can enjoy more than 30 films part of this year's Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. I am joined by Festival Executive Director Kenny Blank. The last time we talked, Kenny, was the last time you were doing the festival in person.
1: Uh, obviously, a lot has changed over the past year. It's amazing to think it was just a year ago that the community was all coming together uh, at movie theaters across the city, watching great international films. We got our 20th edition in just under the wire before, sadly, the pandemic hit. So we've been spending this past year sort of reimagining how we were going to present our 21st edition and doing, do it in a way that was still compelling, showcasing great international films that really speak to all audiences, having conversation around the films. So it's been a challenge for sure. But uh, with kudos to our amazing team, I think uh, the audience is really going to love the festival we have on tap uh, coming up uh, in February. So what do you have planned for this year? So we are going mostly virtual, which means you'll be able to see the entire lineup of films at the festival from the comfort of home. I think it makes it really convenient and easy, especially maybe for first time festival goers who've never had a chance to come out and check out the Atlanta Jewish Film P- Festival, what's this all about? And I think you'll find, uh, the same way you've been watching a lot of movies at home on Netflix and things like this, these are films that are going to be available just at the click of a button, but they're really films that you cannot see anywhere else. They're coming direct from the big international film festival circuit, from festivals like Sundance and Telluride and Tribeca, and you can see them exclusively through our streaming platform of dramas, comedies, romance, documentaries. Uh, biographies, uh, films that are historical, films that are uh, timely, ripped from the headlines. It's a, it's a real it's a festival. So it's a whole mix and assortment of different genres, different topics. So primarily virtual. You'll just download our app if you've got an Apple TV or Roku or uh, Amazon Fire, um, or if you just want to watch on a computer or laptop. Uh, for the price of one ticket, as many people as can safely fit in your household, you can all watch these films and access them. And then there is the larger festival experience that we offer, which is the conversation around these films. So we're gonna be having Q&A panels with major Hollywood actors, major international filmmakers, actors, film artists, uh, academics, experts on the topics of these films. Uh, You can watch those immediately after the film. You can watch them at your convenience uh, later in the festival or even after the festival's over either through our website or the virtual platform. So that's the primary experience, but there's also going to be a a drive-in on our opening weekend at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And there's all these other little components that we've introduced to try to reconnect that, reconnect the community through film.
0: Overall, Kenny, how many films are we talking about included in the festival this season?
1: Uh, 38 feature films and then a number of shorts programs and the shorts are a lot of fun. If you're not really sure what the festival is about, I think the shorts are a great introduction because they're little bite-sized appetizers of a lot of different kinds of uh, films, a lot of uh, edgier films, more experimental films, really creative uh, works by filmmakers who have this challenge of telling a story in just a matter of minutes and seconds. If you Wanting maybe a first taste of the festival. Shorts are a great way to experience it because if you don't like the film you're watching in any given moment, just wait a few minutes, and the next film will, will start up. Uh, so we have a collection of shorts. We have some classic Hollywood films, and we're we're bringing together a lot of the actors and filmmakers uh, back from those classic Hollywood films, and then. Uh, This whole collection of international cinemas, a number of uh, world premieres, North American premieres, including we have a a local story this year uh, with the pandemic. Um, We had some amazing documentary filmmakers who, uh, as soon as COVID hit, they grabbed their cameras and they went out into the Atlanta community and documented how... Different sectors of our community have responded to COVID. Have had to adopt. Um, they they've captured the story in a film called Atlanta: The City Too Busy to Wait, and uh, you will see how Jewish Atlanta has really responded to the crisis and really uh, rose to the occasion, demonstrated great resiliency as uh, we all have in this situation. So, it's though it may seem like a heavy topic when we're we want to be over with COVID, it is a great way to look at all we have to celebrate about this past year in terms of our resiliency and the the true Atlanta spirit that's always been part of this great city.
0: Kenny Blank, Executive Director of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, February 17th through the 28th. We thank you so much for the family to family discount on the family friendly films and uh, we'll see you at the movies. Have you ever wondered why the most wild theories about healthcare and medicine seem to stick even though they're false today? The answer. So the book is viral b s. We are talking to Dr. Seema Yasmin. She's an Emmy award-winning health reporter, epidemiologist, physician. Dr. Yasmin is the director of the Stanford Center for Health Communication, and also, a clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. But now in this book, Dr. Yasmin, you talk to us about why there is so much medical misinformation out there. And in the middle of the pandemic, that's the last thing we need. The
2: last thing we need. I think we are fed up of the fact that there is so much false information out there. But you know what? That's exactly why I wrote this book. And people have said to me, all oh, your books coming out at the perfect time, because we need to learn ways of like separating facts from fiction. And I have to say to people, I started writing this book 60 years ago because the problem of health conspiracy theories, health hoaxes, and medical myths, it's not a new problem. It's just gotten very bad and very dangerous in the last year. So my hope is that the book, you know, it's got nearly 50 chapters, each one of them asking a different question and answering that question, flat tummy teas, vaping and e-cigarettes, cholesterol-lowering drugs, vaccines, all of that. But it's really to get people to understand how do I figure out if something is believable or not.
0: If you were going to point to the top three medical myths that people easily believe and should not, what would they be?
2: Oh, that's hard because I could list 100. (laughs) That's why I wrote this book. But I think one of the ones right now is about vaccines being dangerous and in some cases is conspiracy theories that COVID-19 vaccines cause infertility. And that's completely false. And it's upsetting because I know people who wanted the vaccine, heard those conspiracy theories and then didn't want to get the vaccine. So that's very dangerous. I think there's a lot of confusion out there about cleanses and detoxes, especially, you know, this time of year when people want to get in shape and look great. And so there's chapters about that and the fact that cleanses are a con, trying to get your money and actually your kidney, your liver, your lymphatic system, all of that is designed to cleanse you all the time. You don't need to spend money on these products. And a third one, very hard, there's one chapter about cholesterol-lowering medicines and who needs to be on them and who doesn't, and this makes for a super interesting chapter because even doctors can't agree on this. There's lots of debate in the medical field, and so what I do in that chapter is kind of tell you what questions you need to ask and which website you can go to to kind of assess your own risk. And then you decide whether you should be on that medicine or not.
0: Outstanding. Dr. Yasmin, I want to go back to what you were saying about COVID and talking about the vaccines. We appear to be at the point where there will be more vaccine readily available to everyone who wants to be vaccinated. Straight on, follow the science. Talk to us about why it is important to do so.
2: It's so important to get vaccinated because we want the pandemic to end. And the way you get the pandemic to end is by safely getting herd immunity. Herd immunity is basically community immunity. It's when a high proportion of our population is vaccinated and immunized against the infection. So that even if one person gets the infection, even if two people, so many of us are immunized that that small number of infections does not turn into a full-blown outbreak and the reason I say safe herd immunity remember last year there was a lot of talk about just let the virus run through society people will get sick they'll recover they'll be immune and then we'll get herd immunity and we are seeing now why that approach is so dangerous because the more a virus spreads the more likely you are for that virus to develop mutations. And that's exactly what we're confronting now. So now we're in a race between the vaccines and these viral variants and really hoping that all of these vaccines work against these newer versions of the virus.
0: If they don't, does that mean that the researchers will have to go back to the drawing board and develop yet another vaccine that will attack those variants? That could
2: be the case,
0: yes. I
2: think a better case scenario is one where you say, well, this vaccine has 95% efficacy, super high, great. Oh, it has a lower efficacy against the newer variants. That doesn't mean that it stops working. But already, we've already heard about vaccine makers saying, hey, we've put a vaccine out there already. We are going back to the drawing board to design and develop new ones to deal with these newer variants. But the more of us who get vaccinated and the Sooner we get vaccinated, the more we start stamping out that infection. That makes it harder for the virus to mutate in the first place.
0: We're talking to Dr. Sima Yasmin from Stanford University. She's released a new book, Viral BS, where she debunks many of the old wives' tales and medical myths that so many of us believe. And so, while we've been talking about some very serious things associated with. COVID, the vaccine, and why it's important to get vaccinated when it's your turn. You also take a look at some of the other really ridiculous stuff that we do and shouldn't, like <laughs> eating leftovers yeah. way too late after their expiration dates.
2: Truly, yeah. And so that you know, that might sound a little bit trivial because it's like, oh, I just leftovers, but so many Americans end up in the ER each year because of food poisoning. So it can be very serious. Some of these food infections can knock out your kidneys, and you know, it can be dangerous. So there is a chapter on that. There's a chapter about vaping. Like I said, there's a chapter about should you eat your placenta, which is the organ you make when you're pregnant to nourish your baby. And again, that might just sound like a ridiculous celebrity fad. So many celebrities have been saying, yeah, I had a baby and then I ate my placenta. But actually, can be really dangerous. And I go into this in detail in the book, the story of a baby where the mom had just had the baby. She paid for this company to turn her placenta into placenta pills, believing that there would be some health benefit. There are none. Not realizing that her placenta had a very serious bacterial infection. It's not always very obvious. So she eats her placenta pills. She doesn't get sick herself, but she passes these deadly bacteria onto her baby. And the newborn ends up in the hospital on antibiotics for a long time. Very, very sick. And the doctors were really puzzled until they figured out it was a link back to eating her placenta.
0: Dr. Yasmin, you said you started working on this book six years ago. What motivated you to do so?
2: At the time, I was a health and science reporter at the Dallas Morning News, and I did my regular reporting on like breaking news stuff. But all the time, I was being sent reader questions about, do vaccines cause autism? Uh, Are the chemtrails in the planes from airplanes toxic? Like so many questions. And so I started doing a regular newspaper column called Debunk, and eventually it got so popular that I took some of these and added some new ones and turned it into this book, which just speaks to some of the most Common questions we have about health and science, and especially where there's like a lack of clarity and lots of uncertainty. I really like digging into those and trying to help you find the right answer.
0: Many people, because of the pandemic, when it began now almost a year ago, went out, bought freezers and began to hoard food. How long can you keep that stuff in the freezer and know that it'll be safe to defrost and eat?
2: So the important thing to remember is you just can't keep things in the freezer for an infinite amount of time. And many of us think that. So that's why it's really important to label it so you have the date on it. And also write on it what it is because when things get frozen, you're kind of looking at it like, wait, is this bread or is this? You can't always tell what it is. The time that it lasts for, the time that it's good for is dependent on that kind of food you're talking about and how well you sealed it and at what temperature. So that's why in the book, I kind of go through that in detail. And I give you a website where you can actually go straight to that website, type in the food, exact food. Are you talking about leftover turkey? Are you talking about bread that you froze? You know, whatever it is, that website gives you very detailed information about
0: how long you can eat safely something. February is heart month and many people have been talking about ways to keep your heart healthy. I read you've got a chapter about our teeth and heart disease. What can you tell us?
2: So on the face of it, you might think what do your teeth and gums have to do with your heart, but it turns out a lot. If you have swollen, bleeding gums, you know, bleed every time you brush your teeth, what that means is that the bacteria in your mouth can get through those swollen gums into your bloodstream and in your bloodstream they can cause lots of inflammation inside your blood vessels and actually cause issues for your heart as well. So this is why even our heart doctors, our cardiologists say to us, see your dentist regularly, brush your teeth twice a day, floss twice a day because the health of your mouth has an impact on the health of your blood vessels and your heart.
0: Many parents choose not to allow their sons to play football instead asking that they play soccer or choose another sport is there a reason why parents are afraid to let their boys get hit
2: there is and you know it's not just football parents either it's also parents whose kids play soccer parents whose kids do wrestling and boxing too basically any kind of activity in which the kid and to be honest this applies to adults too but Any activity where you're getting repeated injuries and knocks to the head, what we have learned over the years is that kind of repetitive head injury leads to a buildup of proteins inside the brain that can cause very serious mental health problems. It can also become progressively worse and result in death. You may have heard of this known as CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's been in the news a lot because of this really sad, Things that keep happening to pro football players, NFL players in particular, who've had long careers and lots of knocks and concussions, and then we start to see the aftermath of that. It's a disease that's diagnosed upon death with autopsy. So I go into detail in the book about exactly how we're learning this, but it's because of this building evidence that parents, some are not saying you can't play football, but they are developing safer ways, especially for younger kids to play football to avoid the head injury.
0: Did somebody really write you and ask if patients cared for by female doctors actually live longer than patients cared for by male doctors? If yes, sign me up, but
2: no, I don't really? Know if, I know, right? I, I don't know if anyone asked me that particular question, but the studies were there and I was so fascinated by this. And I promise I'm not being biased just because I am a female doctor. But I think anytime you see whichever group of doctors have better outcomes than others, and as a doctor, you're like, let me see what they're doing right. Let me see what techniques I can borrow. So basically there would be studies in the US and Canada and other places we're looking at certain groups of patients and figuring out, are they doing better because they were cared for by female doctors? And it turns out that's very likely the case with some patients being cared for by a female doctor meant that you recovered better, you recovered quicker, you were less likely to be readmitted to the hospital. So when the scientists were kind of, this is a different groups of scientists around the world seeing this, they were like, why? And some of the clues point to Female our doctors really listening, following guidelines very closely, spending longer with patients. So these are some of the factors. So that was really, really interesting to research and dig
0: into that. Why is it that some of the wacky, off-the-wall stuff is so much easier for people to believe and accept <laughs> than real science?
2: I know, it's so frustrating, isn't it? There was this study that came out in 2018 from MIT, and you may remember some of the headlines generated by the study because the headline said things like false information travels faster and farther than the truth and it kind of makes you want to pull your hair out because you're like why do the lies go viral while the truthful information is just sat here waiting for someone to like come across it. It turns out false information is often packaged in ways that are super entertaining, memorable. When you read it, you're like, whoa, and you want to share it. Whereas the truthful information, sadly, too often is packaged in a really bland and dry way. It's just facts. And I say in the book, no one says, tell me a bedtime fact. You say, tell me a bedtime story. Because stories, actually, whatever you might think about them, they are the way that our brains are wired to learn. And so the anti-science brigade, many in the anti-vaccine movement, they're very good at telling their story. They're very good at making these emotional, provocative YouTube videos that go viral. Whereas us in medicine and public health, we're like, here's a pamphlet. It has 10 facts about why vaccines are safe. No one's listening to that. They're looking at the viral videos, which are very compelling and kind of suck you in. So that's a real issue that we need to deal with.
0: Is that why you took a humorous approach in debunking many of these myths in viral BS?
2: Yes. And I will say, you know, I'm a professional. I'm a very appropriate person. Some of these chapters, there's just no room for humor. It's just really sad stuff. I write about Tuskegee. I write about the history of unethical scientific experiments that causes distrust. But even when I'm not being like funny or humorous, I'm being very approachable and accessible. Because for me, one of the things I hate about science and medicine is this kind of elitism that we are the scientists, we are the doctors, we have the information, you should just listen to what we say. And I think, no, you have to listen to what others are saying and you have to build a relationship of trust where it's a two-way thing. So it's very important to me that the book it not read like a medical textbook. It reads like a collection of stories that you can kind of really get into. And also you don't have to read it in order. You can dip in from one chapter to another, whatever kind of takes your fancy
0: and interests you the most. And what did you tell your readers about vaping? Because you've mentioned that a couple of times and I didn't want to let that pass.
2: Oh, I think that's so fascinating. So, okay, So I live in America now. I live in the Bay Area, but I'm originally from England. That's where I trained in medicine. The UK thinks that vaping and e-cigarettes are so helpful in helping people quit nicotine that you can actually be prescribed e-cigarettes by your doctor in Britain, right? So that's on one hand. On the other hand, like I said, I live in the Bay Area in San Francisco. That was the first city to say e-cigarettes are so dangerous, we're going to ban them. So I'm like, hold on a second. There's these really conflicting viewpoints about e-cigarettes. On the one hand, they're so good at helping smoking cessation, we should prescribe them. On the other hand, they're so dangerous, we should ban them. And I think that the kind of truth and reality sits somewhere in the middle in that for some people, it can be really helpful. Others, unfortunately, have come across types of e-cigarettes that contain chemicals that have really messed up their lungs. And so I go into detail about this and these outbreaks of lung injury in the chapter, but also I'm trying to get to the heart of this idea that. Scientists don't always agree with one another. And science is not just a a bunch of static facts. Science is not just a textbook. Science is actually a very dynamic process where they're constantly asking questions and running new experiments. That means we're getting new data. And that can I think turn people off because you're like, just tell me the answer. And it's like actually it's kind of more complicated than that. E-cigarettes are kind of newish. There's still so much we are learning and there's still not a consensus about their safety.
0: Dr. Yasmin, what is the one big takeaway you want readers to get from viral BS? I want people
2: to understand that even if you are super smart, super educated, you, me, all of us, we are vulnerable to believing stuff that is not true. And I think it's just humbling and helpful to remember that. Just keep your guard up. There are some false information out there that is packaged in really sophisticated ways where you'd be like, oh, that looks legit. That, That website looks legit. Be careful, do not be duped, especially during the pandemic when we have so much uncertainty, fear and anxiety. Please be aware that there are people out there who have malicious agendas and who are trying to scam us and make a quick buck off of our fear and our anxiety. Do not let them exploit that. Read the book, read the end of the book where I have a BS detection kit and get really good yourself at figuring out what's legitimate and what is BS.
0: Dr. Seema Yasmin from Stanford University. The book is Viral BS, available now. Definitely going straight to that BS meter at the end of the book. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for talking to me, stay safe. You too. Thank you again. Before we go, I recently spoke with Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, President and Dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine, and asked, does their involvement in the development and testing of the COVID vaccine lead more people of color to trusted safety?
3: that myself, along with the other three Historically Black Medical School presidents, have been a a part of uh, Blacks Against COVID-19. We've been in partnership with BlackDoctor.org, the National Medical Association, and the National Black Nurses Association. And we have done about seven town hall meetings over in the evenings. Each time we have up to 15,000, 20,000 people on these town halls, and we're just answering their questions. And every time we've done this, we've seen an uptick Of people deciding that they might consider taking the vaccine. And so we believe it matters who the messengers are. We believe demonstrating our presence, our engagement in the research, our engagement in the community engagement, and then our engagement and actually distributing and actually doing the vaccinations is making a big difference. I've talked to my colleagues, my other presidential colleagues, and we're all vaccination sites. We're all vaccinated trial sites, and we are seeing it it matter.
0: Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, we appreciate you. Thank you very much for your time.
3: Perspectives is a community and public affairs program
0: crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me, 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condis Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another